Welcome to Weaver Beyond the Numbers, where Weaver professionals talk about business and accounting. We'll explore a wide variety of topics from tax law and accounting standard changes to managing cyber, fraud, financial, and operational risks. What do these issues mean to your business? Join us as we go beyond the numbers to find out. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Weaver Beyond the Numbers. I'm your host, Tyler Kern. Thanks so much for joining us for another episode of the show. Today on the show, we are giving you operational errors. We're talking about operational errors, talking about the top five of them, and we're going to break those down for you here today with our two experts from Weaver. We have Carrie Franz. She's a partner of Assurance Services with us here today. Carrie, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for joining us. Hi, thanks for having me. Absolutely. And we're also thrilled today to be joined by Araceli Rios. She's a partner of Assurance Services as well. Araceli, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Well, we're thrilled to have both of you on the show here today. And so we're going to be diving in once again to these top five operational errors that we see. But first and foremost, let's introduce both of you to our audience once again, if they haven't seen you on a previous episode of the show. Araceli, tell us a little bit more about yourself and your background and uh, and give us a little bit of an idea of what you do at Weaver. All right. Well, um, I've actually been at Weaver my whole career. So 19 years at the firm, 19 years of experience working with um, employee benefit plans as well. And, um, you know, the firm, when I started, was a two-office firm, and we've grown so much. We're actually now a national firm with offices in California, New York, and, of course, all throughout Texas, as we are a Texas-based firm. We have offices in Fort Worth, Dallas, uh, Midland, Austin, San Antonio, San Antonio and Houston as well. Um, and just, you know, have been here my whole career learning and throughout that whole time, just working on employee benefit plans. Uh, so have seen a lot of things throughout all those years of what goes on and what goes wrong with plans as well. Um, but that that's all all about me. Excellent stuff. Carrie, tell us a little bit about yourself and a little bit more about your role at Weaver. Sure. Um, My name is Carrie Franz. Um, I'm also a full-time partner on the Employee Benefit Plan Services here at Weaver. Um, I am stationed in Houston, Texas. Um, I have more than 28 years of experience in public accounting, been at Weaver about eight. Um, My practice emphasis in the last 18 years has been uh, strictly in employee benefit plan audits. I work on a variety of industries, um, plan sponsors, including several publicly traded companies that sponsor multiple plans. Um, Weaver as a firm currently audits approximately 370 plans for over 300 plan sponsors. So we have a very large practice. Uh, We audit a wider range of employee benefit plans with various funding arrangements, such as um, defined contribution plans, which would include your typical savings, ESOP, 403B, 401k plans, and even those that require the 11k filings for public uh, publicly traded stock in their plans, as well as, of course, defined benefit, health and welfare, and master trust investment accounts. Excellent stuff. We're thrilled to have both of you here on the podcast today, uh, Araceli and uh, and Carrie. So thank you both here for for joining us. Um, let's dive into our first key point that we want to really touch on here on the podcast today. Um, and, and Carrie, we'll start off with you with this question. But when do untimely remittances of participant contributions occur? Can you kind of kick us off today by talking a little bit more about that? Sure. 
So plan sponsors are required to ter- transmit their employee contributions and or loan payments to the trust as soon as they can be reasonably segregated. Um, this is a general term, as it sounds, and could be interpreted many different ways. However, a good example time frame to use and what I tell my clients is, you know, how fast can you deposit your payroll taxes? Usually, if you can do your payroll taxes within a day or two, then those contribution deferrals should also be deposited in the same time frame in that day or two. So um, it's okay to have like that review and reconciliation process. So, I mean, you know, while you might be able to do it in two days, it may take an extra day or two to have that review and reconciliation done and authorizations done. That's okay. But the main goal and the main point is to be consistent throughout the year. So if it, if you have it calculated in two days and the review and reconciliation is usually done within the next two days, so then four to five days should be your normal time frame to deposit those um, pay, participant contributions and loan repayments. I'll add that you should also look at the possibility of vacation time, sick time, emergencies coming up and have a plan for that because the Department of Labor would expect you to have a backup plan in case the person who is responsible for um, the reconciliation and remittance is unexpectedly out or, you know, is taking vacation um, for there to be a backup plan and the remittances to still be remitted within the same time frame as it typically is. So, Arcelli, can you then tell us about the, the incorrect calculation of contributions due to using the wrong compensation definition? Can you kind of break that break that down in the context of this, this conversation that we're having? So a uh, plan sponsor and, and, and the management of the plan, they should be familiar with the definition of compensation according to their uh, plan documents or adoption agreement, um, and make sure that they're following that to the T. So they want to know, um, are bonuses allowed? Is overtime allowed? Um, you know, is it all W-2 wages? Uh, you know, what exactly is allowed to be, um, w- what compensation can be remitted on, um, can be deferred on, I mean, from uh, the participant, that the participant can defer on. Uh, because, you know, if you have, let's say, for example, uh, a bonus and typically maybe the company hasn't had bonuses, it's something new, you know, in, in a few years. And, and and if you're not familiar with your plan, you may forget, oh, we've got to make sure to have the participants defer on that bonus or give them the option to defer on that bonus um, and address that accordingly. Uh, I've had situations where I have seen uh, companies have an off-cycle bonus and, you know, that's something they completely forgot about and they had to go back and make a correction and, um, and, and make the participant whole. So you definitely want to be familiar with everything that, you know, is in your definition of compensation and follow it um, to exactly how it's documented. And, and especially, let's say also, and Carrie, um, you may want to jump in with some examples too, but I'm also thinking if somebody, um, if you make a change in your payroll provider, and so even the mapping of how the deferrals are taken out are are affected. And so you want to make sure when that happens that the new mapping on the new payroll provider has the correct definition of compensation. So even when there's changes to your plan and vendors, that's something that could also trigger um, uh, an error, you know, and it's a, it's human error. It can happen. 
So you just always want to be, uh, you, you do want to check that. Um, even if you're very confident of, you know, you know how, what the definitions are in your plan, just think about situations that don't happen often that could trigger an error, um, and making sure that your plan document, your adoption agreement are always followed. Yeah. Some real life examples that I can think of that come to mind from clients making errors would be, um, sometimes the adoption agreement can refer to like uh, the adoption agreement as the plan document that the plan goes by on that definition of comp. And they can sometimes refer to an addendum at the very back that actually will have different exclusions. Um, it's not always spelled out within the document. There's sometimes an addendum and an appendix at the back that oftentimes gets overlooked, especially the plan sponsor putting that information into their payroll provider, you know, and might not have realized that bonuses or some kind of fringe benefit was excluded from comp. That's a common error we see a lot. Um, also, when amendments are made to the plan document, but then not communicated to the payroll system, we see that happen a lot. You know, they've decided to make a change to the definition of compensation, but no, nobody ever told the payroll system, you know, things like that can happen. And then the last one I can think of is that, um, you know, there are some payroll systems that just have a limited number of buckets. So, you know, they have to put each each little type of compensation that might be included or excluded into these different buckets so that the payroll system can then process what is to be included and not included when they're calculating those deferrals. And there's sometimes the payroll systems just aren't sophisticated enough for as complicated of a definition as what the plan sponsor has made, you know? So those are just, I mean, those are the type of errors that we see sometimes with this that we're catching as we're going through the audits and having uh, to then the plan sponsors having to go back and make those corrections. Excellent stuff. So our first two points were untimely remittance of participant contri uh, contributions. Our second point was incorrect compensation used in the calculation of contributions. Our third point is improper match allocations. And so, Carrie, kick us off and talk a little bit about this. What is an improper match allocation and how does that happen within a plan? So similar to what we talked about above with the de definition of compensation, um, there's also a definition within your plan document of how your employer's match is going to be allocated. Um, to the plan participants. Um, some common errors we note there as well is that um, the same as what was, uh, again, the same as what was discussed a moment ago, the wrong comp compensation can also be used for the matching contributions the same way as the deferrals. So in other words, a different definition for deferrals might be in the plan document than what is supposed to be for matching. So in the example of Araceli's bonuses, it could say that bonuses are excluded from the deferral compensation, but included for match, you know, and that could be for any of these different types of compensation. So you have to make sure that you're looking at the correct definition when you're applying your match allocation for participants. Um, another common error we see sometimes is those calculated percentages were incorrect and not in accordance with the plan document. So in other words, the match could be discretionary or an amendment made and the percentage was not communicated to the payroll system. Um, we see errors in the processing system at, as well, where the match that was allocated to the wrong person altogether, you know, sometimes you get those mistakes in identification numbers, things like that, and it goes to the wrong person. Um, and then lastly, what I can think of is like a participant is deferring a set dollar amount um, rather than a percentage. So let's say the plan document says that the match will be 50% of the first 3% a participant defers. However, a participant has elected $100 a paycheck, you know, and so we often see then that that payroll system doesn't correctly go back and look to see if that $100 was actually, you know, it, did it exceed that 3%? So they'll end up matching $50 on the $100, which would be 50%. 
But if the $100 is more than that 3% of deferral of their compensation, then they overmatched, you know, and then the allocation is wrong there as well. So we see that as an error. A lot of times it has to go back and get corrected. Ersteli, can you think of anything else there? Yeah, the other item I wanted to mention was also making sure you are matching according to what your plan document um, says as far as the timing. So your document may, may say, on an annual basis, you will match. Uh, basically, once a year, you'll go through. You'll go and, and match the deferrals for the participant, or you, or it may indicate that you should do it on every payroll um, transaction or quarterly. You know, it could be. It's very specific, and the timing does affect the amount that you match. So you want to make sure that you are following um, exact. You are following the timing that you agreed to through your adoption agreement. Um, and uh, the other item that I wanted to mention too is just looking at the IRS complementations to compensation limitations. Uh, so there are limitations on how much you can match. Um, I do run into issues where there's, a, sometimes there's only uh, a handful of people at a company that will reach those compensation limitations. So it's overlooked and those uh, people are being matched too much because you can only, the, the compensation limitations change from year to year and the IRS, you know, will let everyone know what those limitations are, but you have to be aware of that and, and have a plan for those people that, you know, would max out and you'd have to limit their match based on those limitations. That does it for point number three. Let's move on to point number four now, where we talk about incorrect application of the participant eligibility terms of the plan. And so, uh, Araceli, tell us a little bit more about this. What should plan sponsors know about participant eligibility? Um, and, and give us some details there as far as the, uh, some, of the, uh, some of the mistakes that people make in this particular area. So for eligibility, again, you know, we're referring back to the plan document, the adoption agreement. And making sure that you're following what what's uh, noted there, what you've agreed to, uh, you know, you may have no eligibility requirements where an employee on the first day of service, they can join the plan or, you know, you may have a one year wait or 90 days. We, you know, the, the, there's a lot of different um, ways that you can set up your plan for eligibility and that will vary from company to company. So you just want to know. Um, you know, exactly what your agreement says, what you've agreed to, making sure that you are uh, following that and that you have processes in place to make sure that people have the option to um, participate once they meet the eligibility requirements. So you really have to think about, you know, what is my process? How do I make sure that everyone that was supposed to participate or have the option to participate receive that option? That, that, you know, if they didn't want to, they were able to opt out. But, you know, especially if, if they're not able to participate on the first day and there is a wait period or an age requirement, you definitely want to have a process in place at uh, that company with management to make sure that there's a trigger so the person does not get left out. Um, because, you know, it's very important that anyone that has the that's eligible to participate gets the option to participate. Yeah, another common error I see sometimes can stem from those rehired employees um, and whether or not they've included the prior service in accordance with the plan document 
document parameters as well. So a client terminates and then is rehired, you know, a year later, as long as the plan document stipulates that that's okay, then they need to make sure that that, you know, those years of service are included for eligibility purposes, if there is a wait period, things like that. Excellent stuff. Excellent stuff. Well, let's move on to our fifth and final point, um, where we talk about improper determination of vesting for participants' distributions. And so, why is vesting important when uh, administrating distributions, uh, when administering distributions? Uh, Carrie, kick us off here with this, this question. Tell us a little bit more about why vesting is important. Well, so vesting is important depending on the plan document, um, again, because if they have a vesting schedule in there and how long they're going to um, need to work in order to be eligible for those contributions, we have to make sure that everything is in place to make sure that their vesting period is accurate. So in case you couldn't tell from the prior points, the plan document is key. <laughs> you are going by that plan document uh, verbatim. You need to make sure you're looking at it and doing exactly what it says. So again, you know, the plan document will spell out the vesting schedule. You know, it could be, you know, after three years, you're 100% vested and it's graduated 33, 66% and then 100%. It could be over six years. It could be no, you know, there's no vesting schedule. In other words, everybody's 100% vested all the time and all the contributions. So you have to look at the plan document, make sure that you've got the right one. The other key item here is to make sure that if you have different types of contributions, say you've got your matching contribution that we talked about earlier, but then there might also be a profit share contribution component to the plan that could have a different vesting schedule. So you could have, you know, one vesting schedule that's three years for the matching and then a six year vesting schedule for the profit share. So you have to make sure that you know what the vesting schedules are for each type of contribution that's there and then make sure that it's being applied appropriately. Um, the TPA, usually our third-party administrator, is going to help you with that. They're going to make sure that um, that is included in their in their work that they're doing for the distributions when a participant applies for a distribution, that it's being put in. But, of course, errors can arise then with, you know, the information that's being communicated to the TPA. If they're not getting the correct entry or hire date for participants, they can have errors with the vesting schedule then. Um, again, the break-in service rules, if, you know, a, a participant is terminated and then rehired that same length and years of service, you know, that they've accumulated and acquired goes into the vesting schedule as well. You got to make sure that those rules are in there and appropriately applied. Um, uh, so if uh, another option or another error that sometimes happens is if a subsidiary is acquired. So you've got a merger of another plan into your plan they could have a completely different vesting schedule for their employer contributions when they come over and you've got these legacy accounts that you're worried about and making sure that the vesting is done correctly there. So you got to make sure that um, the participants are given the right hire date, that they continue with that same hire date. TPAs, sometimes when these participants come over in a merged plan, they end up bringing the date of hire as the date of merger rather than their original hire date messes up the vesting schedule. As you can see, there's lots of little tentacles in this that can make things get messed up. Um, Araceli, anything else you can think of on that? And not everyone will ever have to deal with this, but partial plan terminations, exactly. um, that will trigger 100% vesting. And so you want to make sure that your um, record keeper is aware of that situation, of, the, of a partial plan termination. I have seen where there's a partial plan termination and the record keeper um, wasn't, it wasn't communicated well and there was, vesting was still, um, the participants were still had forfeitures and not 100% vested. And so they should have been 100% vested. 
So making sure that when events occur, you are communicating it to, you know, everyone that's involved with the transactions of the plan, um, because that could trigger an error. And keeping in mind, too, that, I mean, those events can occur and you might not even you know, sometimes the calculation period spans several months. And so you can determine, oh, you know what, as of three months ago, we had that partial plan termination, like Araceli said, and the TPA then is needs to work with the client to go back and make sure that those distributions that happened within that time frame were corrected. You know, and like I said, the, the top thing to remember with operational errors is they're correctable. Everything is always correctable. You find an error, you correct it, move on down the road. It's it's one of the easier things. It can be a headache sometimes, but it's easy to do and easy to correct. Yes. And the IRS and Department of Labor, they have self-correcting programs and voluntary correction programs because they really just want you to get it right. And they want to give you the chance um, to self-correct and and they want to make sure everyone's doing the right thing, but understand that errors can happen. Absolutely. Absolutely is correct. Well, this has been a, a lot of fantastic information. What, where can people go to learn more about Weaver and, and to maybe get in touch if people have questions, if they want to reach out to you all to ask questions and to learn more and to make sure that, uh, that they don't uh, run afoul of the top five opera operational errors? Uh, RSLE, where's a good place for people to go? Please find us at um, www.weaver.com. Um, you, you will find our industry page, uh, you know, under the Weaver website for the employee benefit plan industry and our contact information is there as well. Absolutely. And, and Carrie, any other resources for people that have questions or that want to reach out and and, uh, and get more info? Yeah, we have a couple of different guides uh, under our industry page as well for um, a first time audit and, you know, hiring a good auditor, things like that. Some different things that they can go and find for us that has uh, some great information. And like I said, if they ever can't find it on the website, feel free to reach out to us. We're always here to answer questions and help out how we can. Excellent stuff. Carrie Franz and Araceli Rios, thank you both so much for joining me here on Weaver Beyond the Numbers and discussing the top five operational errors that you all see on a regular basis. Thanks so much for joining us here today. You bet. Absolutely. And everyone, thank you for tuning into another episode of Weaver Beyond the Numbers. You heard the information to make sure that you get in touch. But as always, you can go to weaver.com to learn more, to ask questions, to reach out. If you have questions and you need answers, make sure to reach out to the folks at Weaver. And stay tuned. We'll be back soon with new episodes of the podcast. But for this one, for my guests today, I've been your host, Tyler Kern. Thanks for joining us.